This week's edition of Romaniacs is brought to you by Tide, the nimble small business banking service. Do you run a small business? If you do, then you know that simply running the show takes all your time and energy, and banks don't help. It takes weeks to set up an account. There's loads of unjustified fees, they're so slow, and they're not built for small businesses. Tide is a new kind of service designed to save your small business time and money. You can sign up in just three minutes and get a UK sort code and a commercial MasterCard. You'll get brilliant features, including an automatic assistant that chases your invoices for you, integration with major bookkeeping and foreign exchange software, and customer service by instant messenger. Best of all, there are no monthly fees, ever. Tide is small business banking the way it ought to be, and we've got a special offer for Romaniacs listeners. Tide is offering six months of free transfers. So that's no monthly fee ever, plus free transfers for six months. Just go to tide.co, no need for the UK, and use the promo code RPOD. After your six months ends, you'll move to a pay-as-you-go Tide account, charging only 20p per transaction. So it's farewell to monthly fees, the bane of a small business, and more time for you to concentrate on building your company. Visit Tide.co and use the promo code RPOD. Greetings Brexit Britain and welcome back to Romaniacs, the podcast that approaches the flaming wicker man of Brexit screaming, oh God, oh Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Dorian Linsky and we'll be asking the big question articulated by Liam Gallagher on his new album out today. What's it to be free man? What's a European? <laughs> I'm joined by my two partners in Ramoning. Ian Dunt is the editor of politics.co.uk and also that guy who talks incredibly quickly that you keep seeing on Sky Papers. Hi, <laughs> Ian, we've had a request that you speak more slowly. I saw that and, and I actually, that, that really goes to the heart of a deep insecurity I have, which is that I know that I speak too fast, but it's, it's very hard for me to address. So, I mean, you know, to her, I will do my best, but there's really no promises. There's a lot of stuff to get across. We're in the middle of party conference season. Uh, are you in. Enjoying it so far? Is enjoyment the word? No, no, it, it very much isn't the word. Um, party conferences are just, I mean, for me, like the most dreadful part of, of the year, really. And most of my colleagues don't feel that way. They look forward to it. And whenever I complain about it, they're always like, are you sure you're in the right career overall? And I sort of think, well, no, and frankly, if it involves talking to MPs for three days on end into quite late at night when everyone's been drinking a lot of booze and are crammed together so you can literally smell the breath of the politician that is speaking to you, that's then the I'm very much not in the right career. That's, it's the that's breath. That's put me off. Yeah. <laughs> and also like, live tweeting uh, fringe meetings, which I know is Adam Bienkov. Oh, my a, former colleague, yes. He's a, he's a real Trojan with that. <laughs> yeah, he really sees that stuff through. Yeah. And it, it's especially, I mean, it's one of those things that gets worse and worse and worse regardless of where you are politically because the Lib Dem one, it doesn't really matter what you... They're just so harmless that you can't really get too upset. And then you get to the Labour one where it gets a little bit more pernicious and militant and strategic and then you end with the, with the Tory one, which is really just this festival of horror, as, you know, as has been demonstrated <laughs> over the last few days. Also with us is former Economist, business editor and BBC correspondent, fact-packed Peter Collins, the Mr Data of Remain. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Peter. Have you, been, have you been tuning in to the... Article? Well... I try not to watch too much because I run out of sick bags quite quickly. And as Ian pointed out on a previous podcast, more than ever, political speeches tend to be 99% at empty waffle, with the exception of one particular political speech this week, which turned out to be rather exciting, which maybe we'll talk about a little later. But normally I, I try to just watch the clips on the TV news. Just like the greatest hits. Indeed. And we have a special guest with us today. Ahir Shah is an actor and stand-up comedian. The Telegraph called him one of this generation's most eloquent comic voices. His new show, control is on tour across the country it's about freedom fascism complacency complicity resistance and milk 
Hi, you're here. Welcome to Romania. <laughs> Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Which of these categories does Brexit fit under, then? Brexit is a combination of all of them with a heavy dose of milk on top. <laughs> I thought the milk, obviously. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Basically, milk ended up inadvertently being a gigantic structural callback uh, that ties the entire show together and somehow combines both the failings of my personal life and the entire downfall of Western civilization. I was really glad when I came up with that, because that is, that is neat. That's That's, yeah. I mean, in America at the moment, everything sort of cultural is discussed, you know, with in the age of Trump at the end. <laughs> and here, I suppose, the equivalent is under the shadow of Brexit. Yes. Were you, so were, were you writing most of control on that kind of... Yeah, very much under that sort mind. of, like, fug. And certainly there's a combination of the degree to which it appears that the world has shifted in a new and dangerous way and also the degree to which maybe we were just kidding ourselves about the world that we actually did live in and this was something that underpinned everything that was going on. Certainly in the United States, you're like how could Trump happen? And then you go, oh, I know exactly how Trump could happen because all of the conditions that led up to this had existed for 240 years. Yeah. Right? And similarly, in this country, you're like, oh my God, how could we have possibly murked ourselves this horrifically? And then you realise, oh, right, this country has never come to terms with the end of empire and is still really categorically small R racist and you're like right okay so that's going to be an issue going forward yeah <laughs> time to refight all those battles <laughs> certainly sounded like a lot of fun when my nan did them so <laughs> everybody gets a chance <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll be talking to her here more later before we get started let's have a blue peter style update on the romaniacs patreon appeal where you the beloved listener can lend your support to the podcast and help us to do more exciting things too Peter, what's happening? Uh, what Dorian means by Blue Peter style is, in fact, I'm sitting here dressed as Valerie Singleton. <laughs> and why not? It's in Soho anyway. And Dunst dressed as the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant outfit, actually. I was all fooled. Anyway, thanks to our listeners, it's going tremendously well. We now have 150 backers who've pledged between a humble but very welcome $1 a month to an extravagant $50 a month. We have to do it all in US dollars because that's what Patreon use. And, of course, sterling is going the way of the drachma. <laughs> You're supposed to say at this point, don't what, talk Britain down. Back soon? <laughs> <laughs> no, let's just cut that down. Let's cut that bit, yes. Don't talk Britain down. Right, OK, good. Uh, so, Stop talking Britain down! <laughs> that's better. So, sorry, you no, can just I, get a buzzer for that, surely. <laughs> Now, of course, we, we ought to keep acknowledging the magical powers over the economy that we small band of Romaniacs have. You know, one snippy comment from us and GDP's down half a point <laughs> and, and sterling is off 10, 10%. But anyway, back to the Patreon appeal. Our generous backers will be getting smart Romaniacs T-shirts, mugs and bags, plus early access tickets for live events, which we're working on right now. Well, not right now, but after the podcast. And they're helping us to develop those live shows, plus video and other exciting stuff. If if you would like to help us grow and reach more people, you can find out more at Romaniacs.com. There are special extras for the first 200 pledges, but they're running out, so be quick. Thanks, Peter. Right, let's dive into a huge smorgasbord of Euro news. After Labour successfully stuffed Brexit under the bed at their conference in Brighton last week, this week it's the Tories' turn in Manchester. The conference was greeted with a huge pro-Remain demo on Sunday, and in battle, Theresa May came out punching at the start of the week, insisting that she doesn't want a cabinet of yes-men which is just as well. <laughs> Meanwhile, Boris Johnson is still doing his utmost to get sacked, and Jacob Rees-Mogg informed a fringe meeting that young people will love Brexit, presumably the young people of the 1890s. <laughs> and Brexit baron and big beast of sugar beet, David Davis, says he will retire in 2019 and leave steering Britain through the transition period in the steady and dependable hands of 
Boris Johnson. <laughs> or at least this is what The Telegraph said this week. In a light-hearted remark, Davis is said to have told friends that Barnier needs this to work much more than I do. I'm retiring after this. He's not. <laughs> and that Boris is back inside the tent now. He's been tied to the tent pole and he's pissing everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, uh, that wasn't what David Davis said. Ian, what difference a year makes? Last time there was talk of endless Tory hegemony, but now compassionate thoughts turn to euthanasia. <laughs> is, what, what's happening at Coventry? Can we talk about the speech? Because the speech for us has, has just happened. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And obviously, we'll be a couple of days old by the time anyone hears this. And it's just the most extraordinary. Like the only thing I could compare it to. Would you remember Germany versus Brazil in the semi-final of the World Cup about three, like three or four years ago where you just sat there just going like, oh my God, this is horrific. Like, I can't, I can't watch this, you know, just like with your hands over your face. That obviously sounds really superficial and basically what that happened is a woman got a cough, which is no different to, you know, man eats bacon sandwich in a funny way and that really shouldn't have any political pertinence and blah, blah, blah. Although at the same time also, you know, lol. <laughs> right? But nevertheless, there, there is a thing here. So I kind of think if you look at the last year's conference and you look at this year's conference, it's this sort of morality tale told in two parts. Like the first time is tragedy and the second time is farce. She comes out last year. She does the Citizens of Nowhere speech, which is the UKIPization of the Tory party, of getting, you know, authoritarian nativism and inserting it into Downing Street. She delivers that. She takes it to the country. It's rejected. She comes back this year with her sort of tail between her legs, having to do this apologetic. Because if you could pay attention to the content of the speech, which was very, very difficult to do, just because the cough just became this thing that you just couldn't get past. You just kept on waiting for the next sort of, you know, the next... It was next like that guy who cheated on who wants to be a millionaire. Wasn't <laughs> <it>? <laughs> so, I mean, you just, if you could go for the content, it was actually liberalism. You know, out there, she kept on talking about an open society. She talked about, oh, we've got to be the voice of the voiceless, uh, voices of the voiceless, a million miles away from where she'd been last year. And yet it was really, it actually felt as if the words were just choking her in her mouth. Like she just couldn't get that kind of political message out of her throat just to deliver it to an audience. And so it was very hard to sit there and not just think that this was a grand moment of political moral instruction being delivered to Theresa May and to the Conservative Party at large. Well, there's that clip of uh, Rhys Mogg at the um, fringe meeting where he's just going, Magna Carta, Waterloo, Agincourt, <laughs> all the things he thinks young people are into. Oh, the young, you know, hello, fellow kids. You, who wants to talk about the Magna Carta? It's just extraordinary the degree to which he and people like him believe that the most complex problem in the last 70 years yeah. of British history can be solved through enthusiasm. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. But the like, people lap it up in the room... Because all they're this, morons, all this, no, like, <laughs> no, but, but then you just, but you think what he's offering and what Boris is offering, he was like, if, you know, it's useless against Corbyn. Like, what's Corbyn's problem? You know, strate strategically, this kind of, like, bombastic, blimpish patriotism is sort of useless. And if there is a way forward for the Tories, I guess, it is that more kind of muted liberalism and actually caring about people and whether they can buy houses and so on that, that Theresa May's trying to do. But they're completely different messages. I mean, are they deliberately just trying to, you know, have like a breakaway party? Well, they're obviously not in control of what Jacob Rees-Mogg says. In fact, he's sort of, you know, going around every fringe event in the whole of the Tory party conference, cultivating a support base, you know, telling members, oh, haven't you been hard done by over the years? And wouldn't it be better if it was Agincourt again and then blah, 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 which apparently they're, they're quite receptive towards. So, you know, they... The well, most Tories are big fans of the Archers, so... <laughs> 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 Always on! <laughs> yeah, I mean, they can't control 
world. I mean, you know, what can they do? They can't really control Boris. Boris actually became more subdued as the whole thing went on. Most of his, his naughtiest moments were with the son. Liam Fox, on the other hand, came out and did a speech and started saying, well, we're not going to be in the customs union or the single market in March 2019. And you just think, well, you obviously didn't hear the Florence speech then, because what she said there Did was we that we were going to be in that. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So all over the place, they're like cats in a bag attacking each other, and Downing Street just simply has no control over them whatsoever. I just think somebody somewhere on Twitter reminded us, as other people have been reminded, that we shouldn't call him Boris and imply quite that right. we like yes, him. Right. We should call yeah. him Johnson. And since he's so fond of uh, bad taste jokes, we should remind listeners that Johnson is a slang word for penis. <laughs> <laughs> it's so important. important. Very uh, important. What was penis playing at? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like uh, Johnson's comment about the Libyan dead. That just the fact that that's even a sentence that you can articulate. (laughs) Yeah, and it seemed to be like. And then he was trying to front it out and go, "No, I'm talking about the very serious problem of (laughs) corpse clearance." When it was obviously just a crass joke. The kind of the absolute horror of this embarrassment on the international stage. And it just seems like last time we were talking about will he be fired for, you know, disobedience? Will he be fired for internal party political reasons? But, but now surely there, I mean, there's, a, there's such a huge case. I mean, it has been since day one, but, but more and more that he should be fired because this is an atrocious yeah. image I, I to send to the world. I think you know you've really screwed up when you're having to argue the logistics of corpse clearance as mm. your defence. Uh, <laughs> mm. Have you much. ever had to do that when a joke bombed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, no. well, actually, no, it's very... No, the only corpse clearance I have to deal with is the fact that I always kill out there. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, there's a real sense now that he is... that something is being revealed of his personality... I said, I think last week or the week before, that actually, you know, I was sort of comparing him to Trump and just saying, well, look, Trump is a white nationalist, but actually Boris Johnson doesn't care about anything but his own career, actually, and I increasingly think I might be wrong about that. You see, uh, Mike Harris, sort of friend of the program, started tweeting the other day and sort of saying, look at this history of racial dog whistle stuff that Johnson basically trades in, you know, from the watermelon smile stuff to the half Kenyan stuff, on and on and on and on it goes from the Kipling sort of point the other day. Then, if you look at the video of him at that fringe, that's not a planned moment. That's him just being very relaxed, and suddenly he speaks as he does. Hmm. Would he, for a second, talk about the bodies in Las Vegas, you know, as some kind of butt of a joke? Of course not. And he wouldn't do it for those bodies that were in Barcelona. But these are Arab bodies, so he just doesn't give a fuck. So they can basically be the butt of a joke. Something basically for people to clear away so that British holidaymakers can sit on a beach somewhere. And that is, I think, some kind of true aspect of his personality that is coming out in that moment. So, yes, he's obviously just a, an abysmal embarrassment to the country. And by the way, his comments have been covered in the press all over the world, you know, in Canada, or in America, or all over Europe. But also, we have to start looking at this guy and think, maybe, maybe he actually isn't a clown, and maybe there's something really, really quite grotty and bleak going on deep in his psyche. It's always been the case that, as you said before, people were like, look beneath the clown superficial exterior and there is a malignant narcissist. But I guess the point is, like, maybe in addition to the horrific narcissism, <laughs> we've also got to deal with the horrific views that are... Yeah, mm. it's like, you'd be very interested to hear what he says in private. Well, I would uh, say that one of the, uh, you know, the only things kind of helping Theresa May at the moment is just the the kind of horrific, empty nationalist blather of Johnson and Rees-Mogg but it's the rank and file that choose the leader and so even though from from my point of view even trying to be sort of objective this is just not going to fly with the electorate in a kind of majority winning extent 
the people in those rooms cheering, do they care? Do they get it? Does it matter to them that there's just this sort of magical thinking about Brexit seems to be the main narrative, just like Britain is great, therefore Brexit will be great. Mm. It's, it's getting further and further away from the... Um, <clears throat> sorry, I've got a bit of Theresa May throat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's getting further away from from any kind of reality of, of, of these negotiations. And it, from the outside, it seems absolutely absurd. But then you see him in the room going, I didn't go all, and you wonder. Trying to draw some small positives out of the Conservative Party conference 2017, I felt Boris's speech, after all the build-up it got from his fans in the press, was a bit crap. It was, mm. He was just you know, saying he had like a dozen jokes. He was just ad-libbing from one to the next, and they were all falling a little bit flat. And this was before the uh, bad taste remark about the dead bodies came along. I just felt that he got a polite round of applause and a bit of a standing ovation that just sounded to me like the sort of one that you give to somebody at their leaving do. It wasn't, it wasn't a this <laughs> is our crossed. next... Yeah, exactly. This, it wasn't a this is our next leader type thing. Whereas Theresa May, as we've said, you know, that was awful speech last year. She's realised it, it hasn't worked and is now sounding much more attractive to my ears by getting the conference, the thing that I liked most about her speech, getting the conference to applaud when she said to EU migrants, we want you to stay. Dealing with your own crazed backbenchers and, and party enthusiasts is the biggest challenge for any political leader. And she, at least she did something, despite all the cock-ups that happened yeah. along the way. Small mercies. And I think that we need to pay attention when you compare and contrast with last year's Citizens of Nowhere thing. The important thing is always going to be the distance between the rhetoric and the practice, right? And there have been so many instances since she took on the premiership where people have been commenting, oh, we're just hearing rehashed millibandism. That's all that we're doing. And then you look at the day-to-day -day practicality of what this government does, and it is a million miles away from what the government of Ed Miliband would have done. So, sure, you can use the words all you like, and you can give off the impression that you're now a cosmopolitan liberal because you realise that selling horrific UKIP stuff to the wider electorate is not going to fly in the way that you thought it would. But look at what they're actually doing, and it's got nothing to do with actual lovely huggy kindness. <laughs> <laughs> The other big story of the week has been the shocking police violence around the Catalan independence vote. The Spanish government had declared the vote illegal, but scenes of riot police dragging protesters around by the hair, beating senior citizens with truncheons and kicking them down the stairs made that pale into insignificance. Inevitably, anti-EU voices tried to make this all about the EU. Our podcast rival, Christopher Chopper Hope of The Telegraph, tweeted that scenes of Spanish armed police in riot gear stopping Catalonians voting on their future are a disgrace and should shame the European Union. And from the other extreme... Paul Mason tweeted that the same right-wing EU elite, the EPP, that crushed Greek democracy is saying nothing as Rajoy crushes Catalan democracy. That's why it's an EU issue. Oh, In fact, the EU did condemn the violence, but not specifically the police or Spanish government, although spokesman Margarita Chinas declined to say specifically that the EU was condemning Spanish police tactics. Ian, is it a valid criticism to say that if Jeremy Corbyn ought to condemn government violence in Venezuela, then the EU should condemn government violence in Catalonia? When you do the, oh, everyone's got it, it always sounds a bit like Trump, you know, with the, with the fascists and the anti-fascists or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'm quite sympathetic, to be honest, to, to the predicament that the EU is in. Not that they don't really struggle with this stuff. You know, a while back, when they started criticising what was going on in sort of Hungary and Poland over the refugee crisis, of course, they were attacked for being, you know, way, how dare you sort of patronise these member states and, you know, get involved in what's ultimately a sort of, you know, sovereign policing decision that they're making. Of course, the Brexiters, you, know, you can only imagine what the Eurosceptics would have said if the EU had criticised us when Ian Tomlinson was actually killed 
by Met Police, you know, with very heavy handed tactics against the ultimately really quite peaceful protest. So it seems absurd now that they come out with this criticism. The EU is just torn in two directions. I mean, you've got this, this situation is just completely impossible. That referendum is illegal as a point of fact. It's a completely, and, and there's lots of people on the Catalonian sort of independent side who are really quite right-wing and quite nationalistic. If you allow as a state a referendum like that to just take place, you could basically just say, well, if there's four guys in a pub and they say, we're going to have a vote now that we don't come under British law and we can now commit burglary, then that's not okay either. There has to be a legal basis upon which to have the vote. So we had during Scottish independence. That doesn't mean that the Spanish government response is moral or sane. It is unspeakably just abysmal, really, really dreadful behavior. And the scenes on Sunday were horrific. The better thing for the Spanish government to have done would have obviously been to say, well, look, we're just going to completely ignore it. It's just a bunch of student politics. It's a bunch of guys having a vote that has no basis in law. So, so what does it matter? That would be the sensible response. They didn't take that. They are full of nationalists who are just as crazed. In fact, I would say probably more crazed than the ones on the Catalonian side. And the EU's response is just, well, I would much rather not go near that with a barge pole. If we interfere, we're, you know, people who are just heavy handed, oppressive tyranny from Brussels. If we don't, then it's looked as, as if we tacitly, you know, accept all of this and encourage it as exactly been spoken of. And, you know, while I might have wished for a more tough, possibly response, I've got to say, I really do get why the EU just sit there thinking, I just don't want to go anywhere near this. They do have a problem. They, they have a responsibility. If you look at Article 2 and Article 7, mm. you know, Article 2 sets mm. out the values of the European Union, respect for human rights, rule of law, rights of, of minorities, including the Catalan minority in the Kingdom of Spain. Article 7 says that they have to take action and, if necessary, suspend membership if something really bad goes on. And you can't really do that if you haven't had a record of making increasingly loud comments as a situation deteriorates. So they do have some responsibility to, to at least say something, but then as Ian's point out, what do you say that doesn't make things worse and doesn't make you look like you're trying to go in on one side or the well, other? It's very difficult for them to do. There was some confusion about Article 7, uh, where I saw a tweet going round which, which said it calls for suspension of any member state that uses military force in its own population. Fake, completely fake. It doesn't say, I looked at the text last night, it doesn't say that at all. Before we move on, words from multicultural champion Morrissey. Yeah. At a BBC Six Music Live show to mark the release of his new album, Morrissey remarked that Anne-Marie Waters, the demented Islamophobe who chairs something called Sharia Watch, <laughs> did not win the UKIP leadership because the poll was rigged. Then, when nobody laughed at this hilarious joke, he berated the utterly confused audience for not reading the papers, which is a bit rich when his new single specifically asks his fans to stop watching the news because the news contrives to frighten you. <laughs> Irish blood, English heart, cardboard brain. <laughs> what, at this point, is an old school, or perhaps enduring, Morrissey fan to do? I've just reviewed his new album, which mm. is pretty good, features no references to Anne-Marie Waters <laughs> or Islam which was a close-run thing. And now I feel bad. I'm like, my review's going to come out and people are going to go, why didn't they mention this horrible thing? Like, I think just... basically you just stick with listening to the Smiths and every time Morrissey comments, dial up one more percent of the amount of it that Johnny Marr was responsible for. Right? So <laughs> yeah. before this, you were like, all right, like the royalties were split 40-40, 10-10, so Johnny Marr was 40%. I'm basically at the stage where I'm like, Johnny Marr was 96% responsible <laughs> for the entire output of the Smiths. Well, the weird thing about Anne-Marie Waters, well, I mean, oh, I mean, it's obviously very obvious, <laughs> weird thing, um, is that she was... It's fairly left wing. I think she was a, a, like a Labour member, maybe stood as a Labour candidate. And it was Islam 
her obsession with Islam that kind of led her in this direction. And it does seem to be the way that, the, the, with a lot of Morrissey's statements, that seems to be the thing. And, and some people say, well, how can Morrissey, who holds these kind of views, seemingly progressive views about certain issues, such as, you know, the monarchy or, you know, animal rights, can say these horrible things? And I, it does seem to be a kind of thing that, that, that happens to people who in many ways are on the left. They become obsessed with the idea that this is the you know, the chief danger to civilization. I, th- I think on that, uh, like, the monarchy thing, okay, I can <clears> say <throat> republicanism is probably more associated with the mm, left. Mm. I don't really necessarily think that the animal rights thing is a particularly left-wing or solely the preserve of the left. You can be very right and into animal welfare, conservation. In the Fanny, I think of any famous right-wingers like, who are vegetarian. I, no, no, <laughs> there's no one single example in my mind that was... <laughs> We've got Ken Livingston here. To um, okay, but not that. But he, you know, he obviously hated, hates the Tories. Said nice things about Corbyn and Bernie Sanders. It's not that one can place him at a certain point in the spectrum. And there's quite a bit. Just, there's quite a strain of that on the left. Isn't there? I mean, you saw it. You know, especially after 9/11, you'd see. You know, the sort of Christopher Hitchens and even the McEwans of the world, sort of, you know, people on the left that sort of thinking, well, look, this is what we're facing here is Islamofascism, right? The mm. fascist threat now comes from militant Islam, and that's something that we need to address. So there's, there's been a strain of that on the left for, for mm. some time, actually. It feels weird with him, just because, and like, Dorian, you and I have talked about this, you wrote a thing in The Guardian for him, but it's just like, he's not like just music that you liked when you were a kid. It's not, you know, like it's, I don't know, like Michael Jackson or something, where you liked it, but it's not like you had this really intimate, personal relationship with it but with the smiths if you're a teenager growing up listening to the smiths that was the stuff you listened to when you were down you know it was the stuff you listened to when you were learning to it's the classic thing with the smiths is you know self-pitying man self-pitying boy in his bedroom you know weeping because go you know because he didn't get the girl he wanted and because you have that very intimate relationship with him i think it feels more of a betrayal when he comes out with this stuff maybe than Morrissey it is just others. trying to find new ways to make me cry <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, good luck to Morrissey uh, on the release, the release of his new album. Now on to our first main topic. Is the economy really getting worse or do we just think it is? The state of the economy remains the Brexit battleground with Leavers and Remainers fighting over every scrap of good and bad news. Peter, every time there's bad news, Leavers accuse Remainers of seizing on it with glee. When there's good news, Leavers start shouting, despite Brexit, and claiming that the liberal media are suppressing the great opportunities of Brexit. Is the economy really getting worse or is it up well, for debate? what makes economics so fun is that there's different ways of measuring it and some indicators are leading indicators. They're telling you what's coming up and some of them are, look back, you could argue that are wonderfully good unemployment figures, which they certainly are, the best of 42 years, are a, a lagging indicator because it's, it's the collective uh, effect of lots of economic growth that we've had in the past that's brought unemployment down. If you look at what's happening now... Our growth prospects are getting worse. You know, the economy is going to grow about 1.5% this year. It was 2.2% in the year before last, you know, 1.8% last year. The euro area is now going to grow faster than Britain. We have the highest inflation rate among the G7 countries. That's a large part because of the pound going down after the referendum. We've had some good news on, you know, investments by BMW in the mini plant in in Oxford. However, the big slightly Brexit-related corporate collapse of the week is Monarch Airlines. It was partly to do with terrorism attacks hitting its biggest markets like Tunisia and so on. Might be some scope for criticising their management decisions. But I think they've got at least some some point in arguing that the cost of fuel goes up because the pound goes down and they've had to cut fares because customers, when they go on holiday, their, their spending money goes less far. 
we did have Boris Johnson, as you say, this week in the Conservative Party conference speech, making the usual point that we, the Romaniacs, are always saying that good news is happening despite Brexit. But it is happening despite Brexit. I mean, nobody, even the most... I haven't heard the most ardent Brexiteer claiming that Brexit is already boosting the economy because we haven't we haven't done these wonderful trade deals that we're supposed to be getting. So it is it would be economically illiterate not to say that any good news is happening despite Brexit. And unfortunately, overall, the picture is that the supply of this good news is is dwindling. Yeah, sorry, earlier I said Lever said it was despite Brexit, but of course it's Remainers saying it's Well, no, it's now, as Boris did, got this conference right. to do, it's, it's the Leavers who say despite Brexit uh, as, a, as a riposte to us, right. saying mm. that it is in fact despite Brexit. It's their ironic hashtag. Yeah. It's, it's mm. our, yeah, it's, yes. they, should, they should have held up a bigger hashtag. Yeah. Ironic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a friend who's a, a Lever who's big on uh, doing that uh, sort of thing. It's like, well, in my area and stuff, everything's booming and what have you. And it really reminds me of those people who say like oh could do with some of that global warming right about now on a chilly day <laughs> they were like right you are confusing a very very small thing with absolutely everything plural of anecdote becoming data and that whole thing. exactly yeah. well yeah it's almost as if like unless somebody's like walking down their high street you know closing down businesses <laughs> kicking people out of their homes they go well the economy it's not affected me yeah it's fine there's just some sort of wishful thinking i mean i've just realized how much actually even you know people in this room obviously know a great deal about politics and economics and and all of this kind of get deep into the weeds of the data and most people are just not really interested in the facts they're interested in the feeling of what they would like to happen if you hear any of the vox pops during the tory conference about how people felt about brexit None of it was kind of connected to everything it was mostly it was just the kind of get on with it everything's fine and it's like that's not that's something you would tell, like, you know, your, your child mm. if they were kind of like, anxious about a school trip or something. But it's not something you, it's not something you can say about, like, And you can be a very stern father. That's a- <laughs> Get on with it. Everything's fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I probably would phrase it slightly differently. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean? Like, where, where it is actually a psychological thing. If you can convince someone it's fine, it will be fine. Mm. You know, don't worry about this. But this whole idea of just, like, if, if you fix the psychology then, you know, Michel Barnier will just kind of, like, deliver everything you want. OK, guys, as long as you really believe, as long as you really believe. And going back to what we said, I think I may even said it myself, on the very first Romaniacs podcast, it's the Tinkerbell gambit. It's that Tinkerbell uh, only exists because you believe in her. If you don't believe in her, she vanishes and doesn't exist. It's just, it's, it's that puerile. There has to be just a basic sense of how economics operates with this stuff. I mean, you know, if the pound is worth less and wages are not keeping up with inflation as a result of that, people can buy less stuff. That's just not very complicated. If you start talking about putting up trade barriers between yourself and your largest market, you're going to have less of an export economy. That's just not that complicated. If you have a prolonged period of very, very profound political and economic uncertainty, there's going to be less investment. That's just not that complicated. And, uh, you know, Stop you talking, Britain! <laughs> <laughs> there's that button know, once all, again. Yeah. All I'm hearing is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, but you're right, all, all of these things obviously uh, are sort of, sort of axiomatic. That Exactly. So, so why can't they just... And the thing is, it would obviously be this way by virtue of the project. So you can say, look, it's worth it for something else. 
but they, they're too scared to make that point. So instead, you enter into this period where you just have to deny reality for a protracted period. And that's part of why we get this incredibly strange form of political debate, where the rhetoric that you hear from ministers increasingly has absolutely no connection whatsoever to objective reality of what is really going on in the country or in the trade arrangements around them. It's almost as though, through a needless assertion of white identity politics, we've murked ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> we'll be investigating this maverick theory later. <laughs> <laughs> You've been hearing him off and on throughout the show, our special guest, stand-up comedian, Ahir Shah. Ahir, uh, can you tell us a bit more about this show, Control? Your so this show was basically written as a result of um, the, the previous show that I did, uh, one called Machines, uh, which I performed in 2016, was very much about the idea that the world stood on the precipice between a potential future and what could be and the resurgent worst of the past trying to reassert itself on our present and that we were sort of walking that tightrope in the now. And then Control very much became the result of, oh, the past one. OK, <laughs> let's, uh, let's see how that's going to play out. Uh, so, you know, I wrote that previous show and then Brexit happened, Trump happened. Now, more recently, you have the AFD being uh, in the German parliament. You have the Front National coming second in the French presidential elections. And you're like, right, all of these things that we thought had been fought and won, put to bed, are going to have to be relitigated all over again. And let's explore what the world looks like in that environment. Good jokes? Really funny, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of choice quips. Talk about my dick sometimes. That's pretty fun. Uh, yeah. Um, you said you've got the three L's, left, liberal and losing. Do you think the left is, is sort of losing as badly as it, say, seemed last year? Or are there signs already that, that this is, there's a lot of resistance and it could swing back sooner than we thought? There is. I suppose certainly I feel slightly more confident than I did when the right was at its most triumphalist in this country and in the United States. But the thing is, like, it's it's kind of about, like, seeding ground. And I do still believe in this sort of notion of the Overton window and the ideas of what's possible, right? So if... In the course of the 20th century, for example, when you look at uh, the way that culture changed and everything, you're like, right, the left decisively won that, and a uh, Tory from 2017 would be considered by the Tory of 1917 to be a communist or whatever, right? But if we get to a situation where people on the left are trying to out UKIP UKIP with the rhetoric on immigration. I know Stephen Kinnock's been doing this in a big way recently and it's very mm. uh, upsetting, mainly just because, like, there are, how many people can tweet you the words lump of labour fallacy before you decide maybe to Wikipedia? <laughs> <laughs> but if we start talking in those sort of protectionist terms and uh, seeing people as like, oh, this is just human capital rather than actual human beings, then I fear that ground is going to be seeded and we're not winning it on the terms that we should be winning it. We're winning it on someone else's terms. Basically, you would sort of be the thing that really we have to counter the anti-immigration narrative, not sort of find some room within it. Yes. <laughs> do you think is there anyone out there that you think is sort of doing that well sort of an MP or something like that but there's anything giving you hope basically uh, yeah basically like everyone who's been going back at uh, Stephen Kinnock uh, over there's like I know Alison McGovern was doing a lot on that it, it distressed me when hero of the left uh, Jeremy Corbyn said stuff that was substantially inverted commas worse than having the words controls and immigration on a fucking mug but mm. all of a sudden because the man who said it can do no wrong, then, oh, yes, uh, talking about wholesale importation of people and uh, workers and all of that to undermine the good, honest Brits and everything. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely fine, because he's like, 
oh no, all of the right people say that this is what a leftist looks like and talks like, so that's fine. Whereas putting something on a mug is abominably racist and how dare Ed Miliband. Mm. And of course, technically, this was about the EU and it was about EU migration. Mm. But for you, when the, uh, when the referendum happened, did you just perceive this as kind of an expression of, you know, sort of racist sentiment? You know, there was no other thing where you could vote on racism. Yeah, well, in my head, outlet. I always think of it as Britain's referendum on inverted commas, the EU, right? Like, there was so much more going on there than that. And certainly what became hugely apparent to me, if nothing else, was... This is a situation where lots of liberal leavers or anti-racists or people who at least claim to be, you couldn't go through that entire campaign without being fundamentally aware as an informed and engaged person that racism was there, prevalent and present and clustered heavily on one side, right? So you had to reconcile yourself with that if you're the sort of person who likes to claim that you're anti-racist or, oh, I'm a liberal and I'm doing this for other reasons. And you have to say, well, on this specific issue, I will happen to agree with everyone who thinks that Ahir and his entire family are fundamentally subhuman. And that's not good enough for me. It was like, oh, thank you very much for your allyship up to that point. And it's, yeah, it's, it's part of the reason why, like, when when we talk about, oh, these Remainers treating it with glee when they see that Brexit's going bad. Of course I'm fucking gleeful if it's going bad. Like, how awful would it be if, oh, God, for the first time in history, it turns out that everyone who hates my mum for no reason's correct. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that would yeah. fucking suck, right? Like, so, yeah. Do you, and do, do you know anybody in your family, sort of in any Indian British people or any people who are not white who are actually... Leave voters? Were you, uh, if so, were you surprised at them? I personally know one non-white leave voter. Uh, he was like a liberal leaver. Uh, and then when I was canvassing for Remain, uh, the one incident that upset me more than any other was a young British Asian woman, probably about my age, talking about why she was going to be voting out and using exactly the same language about Eastern Europeans that was used to demonise her and my mm. parents and grandparents and everything. And you were just like, right, you have, you know, we walked through the door on Thursday and you're shutting it behind you on Friday because you have bought hook, line and sinker, the same lies that were told to people to make them hate your... Did you manage to get through to this woman and pers persuade her of the error of her ways? No. <laughs> I felt dreaded. Like, I, I, I extricated myself from that situation because I realised that I would do more harm than good if I revealed quite how angry I was. Hmm. I mean, it worked with lots of sort of immigrant groups. It worked with lots of the Asian community. It worked with lots of sort of Australians. It worked with a lot of South Africans to just say, oh, freedom of movement's racist. <laughs> how, how come the French guy gets to come over, but, you know, but, you know your, your, your grand didn't get to come for the wedding or whatever? Yeah. And, of course, that works because a lot of these people have had these brutal experiences with the Home Office. Yeah. And what they see is, you know, but, a guy came over a couple of months ago and just got to swan on in. There was, there was no controls there. Yeah. And, actually, that argument was compelling for them, for a lot of people. And, and I agree that hurt me more than yeah. any other argument. It's the one that I absolutely lose my head over. There's a podcast I did with a... A lawyer a while back that, that brought this up, that brought up this idea, a guy I really, really like to go drinking with. And as soon as it came up, the, the freedom movement is racist thing, I just completely yeah. lost my emotional calm. It was just a, a pure shouting match by that stage. Because it's such a pernicious, cynical, yeah. twisting move for them to have occupied. But it was one that we have to realize actually did work with, with quite a few people. Well, in the after a panel discussion, I did a journalist who I will not name because he has to remain impartial, uh, did say, God, and if any of them actually believe that, then I've got a bridge to sell them. Uh, <laughs> which is, like, yes, of course, Nigel Farage wants to make it 
easier for my Indian family to come over here. Of course, right? It's just like the willful ignorance it takes to decontextualize a political decision in that fashion is just mind-boggling, right? Like it's why I had a huge amount of respect for uh, Paul Mason when he said that instinctively he is not a fan of the European Union, would go for Brexit, but in this particular instance, he knew full well that this was going to be used to hammer home a hard right agenda, and men like him, Yaris Varoufakis, no great fans of the EU, who said fundamentally I am an anti-racist and an anti-fascist and I know the sort of agenda that this is going to be used to push down the line therefore in this given context I cannot do the thing that I would actually quite like to do uh, right? and I was like cool, that's solidarity that's good mm, yeah. right? Um, so um, without obviously spoiling the final, the final joke yeah. uh, control did, did, is there, did you have to try and find some sort of narrative of hope and, and fight back in this and presumably it doesn't end like 1984 with you know. yeah, I have won <laughs> the victory over myself so, I just love like, Brexit yeah, yeah, yeah. Brexit just <laughs> yeah just at the end it's me on my knees shouting do it to Pavel I've <laughs> 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 sold out the Eastern Europeans right yeah uh, <laughs> A lot of people had said to me after seeing the show, it's like, oh, that is uh, articulation of all of the problems. What do we do now? And I'm just like, well, I'm as fucking clueless as the rest of you. Like, I've got no idea how to fix this. This is greater than me. This is greater than any individual. I can't conceive of a way to write a world that has become so thoroughly fucked at the moment. And I just have to seem as though I'm praying just as much as anyone, I suppose. Uh, I've, got, I've got no answers. Well, we I'm a hell of a diagnostician, though. We, we do have answers, but we're not going to tell anyone until we hit a Patreon target. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll solve everything. You get one bottle of snake oil with every subscription on Patreon. Okay, let's go to Peter for a short commercial message. If you enjoy Romaniacs but occasionally like to think about matters other than obscure subclauses of the Lisbon Treaty, then you might like our sibling podcast, Big Mouth, the pop culture talk show for the thinking time waster. Every Saturday, Big Mouth brings together Britain's best entertainment journalists to talk about the new music, films and books that matter. This week, they're off to future Los Angeles for a look at the new Blade Runner sequel, um, Blade Runner 2049, the sequel to Ridley Scott's classic of science fiction, as well as listening to the new album by Liam Gallagher and investigating the latest in the 33 and a third series of highbrow rock criticism. You can get Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. It's the best thing on Saturday morning since multicoloured swap shop. <laughs> he wrote that bit. <laughs> I, I have no idea what that is. We've got an extra guest this week. Sue Wilson is the chair of the brilliant named Bromain in Spain, a pro-EU anti-Brexit group of British migrants in Spain. And she's come to London to tell us what Brexit looks like to people who might have to uproot themselves and change their entire lives. Hello, Sue. Welcome to Romaniacs. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So this is Bromain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. That's what Yeah, you're yeah, yeah. I was expecting that <laughs> one. one. Of <laughs> I haven't heard was that, that before. Not, that, but was that not <laughs> the inspiration behind it? Um, I don't know, because I didn't come up with a name. So I actually only joined the group three weeks after it started. Okay. Um, It was created by um, two uh, women who live in Barcelona, who were so appalled by the result of the referendum that they decided they had to do something about it. And I joined it three weeks later, by the time I'd finished crying in my soup. 
And by the time it got to August, I was the most active member of the group and it was becoming too big for them to deal with. So they asked me to take over. So I've been chair since September. And which part of Spain do you live in? I live in the Valencian community, about halfway down the East Coast. What exactly is Remain in Spain then? Like how? Well, we're a campaign group. We've got two aims. Uh, The first of those is to stop Brexit. And the second of those is to protect citizens' rights of the UK citizens who live in Spain, but also in Europe as well. And, and that's our plan B. And we need to do that, whatever happens. So we're working on both and we have allies in both. Uh, with the citizens' rights bit, we work with British in Europe, who are one of the 10 groups that makes up the British in Europe coalition that now represents 35,000 people. And on the fighting Brexit front, we're affiliated with the European movement and with Britain for Europe. So we're taking a two-pronged attack. And what's the mood like at the moment among experts? It's still very unsettled. Uh, The news recently from the negotiations as far as the um, health care benefits and also pensions was concerned, obviously gave people some hope that there was light at the end of the tunnel. But the problem with the negotiations is that nothing is agreed until everything's agreed. So there's still that huge level of uncertainty, not knowing if there's going to be a deal or not, or how much longer people have to wait to find out what their situation is going to be in the future. And there's a there's a kind of stereotype of, of the um, of the kind of leave voting British expat. Um, is the caricature... Uh, how, how accurate is that caricature of people who are sort of, we're taking our country back while sunning it on the Costa del Sol? <laughs> uh, they, those people certainly exist, which is where the stereotype c- comes from. Um, but we try to do everything we can to dispel those images. Even The Guardian, I'm afraid, are, are guilty of uh, using the sort of images we want to get away from, even if they're a really good supportive article, which they often do uh, in... Uh, helping the uh, UK citizens in Europe. It's then accompanied by a picture of a bowls club, a golf club, people playing bridge, (laughs) or they're in a bar that's festooned with Union Jacks. And that is exactly the image we're trying to get away from. And we have complained to The Guardian, amongst others, Mm. many, many times to try and dispel those images. Well, I remember a couple of days after the referendum, there was the kind of the classic, you know, lever standing by the pool going just people should you know they should just go back to their own countries <laughs> <laughs> those people those people exist do you meet do you personally know leavers do you ha- do you have i'm afraid so yes yeah. um i did know some leavers that were friends but they're not friends anymore <laughs> oh, uh, oh. uh but yes i would say about a third as far as we can gather of the people who voted in the referendum in spain and probably in the rest of europe voted leave what are the numbers? Because it's always we always, and when you think of Brits in, in Europe, you think Spain. Basically, that's what you think. But and presumably, it is the overwhelming majority. Or something, but I don't actually know what the numbers are. How many? Yeah, three hundred thousand officially. Uh, unofficially, we suspect it's more like a million hmm. because lots of people don't register or they don't live there all year round. So if you're not there for more than six months, you don't need to register as a Spanish resident. So the numbers are bigger than anybody knows for sure. And how divisive was the referendum there? I mean, we know, we know what it was like in, in Britain, and it really was, you know, I know that it sort of split families and friends apart. Did it get quite heated there? It's exactly the same. And the Leavers voted to leave for the exact same reasons that they did in the UK. It was all the usual nonsense about Turkey's about to join the EU, or it's 
getting our uh, control back, sovereignty. It was just the same arguments. Uh, and the people who do live in Spain, who did vote leave, seem to think that absolutely nothing is going to change because Britain's going to get a fantastic deal. Nothing's going to be any different from it was before referendum day. So they are living in cloud cuckoo land, I'm afraid. There's something almost admirable about their, their faith in this. <laughs> that they've literally put their kind of, you know, their lifestyles, their sort of homes on the line. They've staked <laughs> everything on Absolutely. this belief that it'll be fine. I mean, that uh, makes them sound like quite upbeat characters. <laughs> because uh, I, I would not take that punt if I was determined to stay in a certain country. And we hope they're right. We hope mm. that absolutely nothing is going to change. But as I say very often, the best way to make sure that nothing changes is to stop Brexit in the first place. And it's the you, best way to protect our rights. Are you getting any sense that the, the leave voting Brits in Spain, now that we're hearing the detail of what might or might not be in the agreement on pensions and migrants and all sorts of things, are they beginning to think, oh, hang on a second, uh, maybe this it won't be all right? Or are they still, in your, as far as you can tell quite blithely optimistic? I think, on the whole, they're blithely optimistic, more so than I think some of the levers are in the UK. But um, the other thing to take into account, of course, is that it's a very small percentage of the people who live in Europe, the Brits who live in Europe, that actually were able to vote. Because if you've lived out of the country for more than 15 years, you don't have that right. So we're talking about a small number of people who are actually able to exercise that right. Out of one and a half million people, Brits who've made their homes in the EU, only around a million of them couldn't vote. And that was something that was supposed to be in, in the um, Tory party manifesto, that they were going to give us back our voting rights. And it was put on hold until the next year for two years running. And then it was dropped from the manifesto this year completely. So it's in the uh, Lib Dead manifesto, so we're still fighting that battle. How long have you lived there? I've been there for 10 years, yeah, so yeah. I'm one of the lucky ones that did get to vote. But it's very frustrating if your life can be considerably affected by what's, what might happen in the future, but you didn't have any say in it. So are your friends and neighbours making contingency plans to leave? I mean, are they sort of holding two sort of ideas in their head at the same time? Nobody, to my knowledge, is making contingency plans yet because they're all hopeful that they won't need to. The main issue is purely financial. Although we've got this supposed agreement on health care and pensions, certainly for anybody over 50, those are the two main concerns. If those were not guaranteed then people would have no choice from a financial point of view but to move back to the UK because they wouldn't be able to afford private health care in Spain if indeed they qualified. Because if you've got any pre-existing medical conditions, then it's next to impossible. So the reason for moving back would solely be a financial one. It's certainly not anybody's desire to uproot themselves and move to the UK, which they don't even recognise anymore. For many people, they've been in Spain or France for decades. So it's, I mean, I don't recognise it anymore. And I come back here regularly and we don't like what we're seeing. Yeah. So the thought of having to give up the life we have in the country we love is something that's very hard to stomach. Is there a weird, I mean, it's funny because the national debate here, to, almost to our credit in a way, 
is mostly about Europeans in the UK. And actually, the truth is, even though ostensibly their rights haven't been guaranteed to be used as a bargaining chip in exchange for Brits in Europe, we actually hear comparatively little about, about Brits in Europe. Is there, a, is there a sort of an irritation w- with that? Or? There is. We all support absolutely that the EU citizens get a good deal mm-hmm. and they have it far worse than we do. Uh, we're not getting any of the kind of treatment that they get or, uh, and we have got the EU supporting us and we've got our faith in the EU coming up with a deal for our rights. Mm. But obviously the EU citizens of the UK have got to rely on the British government, which none of us particularly trust. <laughs> but any kind of conversations, and this is even true when we talk to politicians or when we talk to uh, the Brexit department, it's always, we're always outnumbered by the three million or other mm. citizens' rights groups because, of course, most of them live in London and they can easily turn up to a meeting in Whitehall. But it's much more difficult for representatives of people living in the EU to go to meetings. So, I mean, I was at a meeting um, a month or so ago with a group of uh, Lib Dem politicians and there was me and there was five people representing the EU citizens. So I spoke for 10 minutes, they spoke for 50. And that's kind of quite often what happens. Do you find that you get, you mentioned being at this meeting with, with Lib Dems, do you find that you, you get a sympathetic hearing, that you do at least get the chance to talk to MPs? Yes, we do. And uh, we've got a very successful uh, lobbying group. We've got about 80 volunteers who regularly lobby um, both the House of Lords and the House of Commons in the UK. But we do very much feel as though we are invisible. We keep hearing from the UK government or from Dexu in particular that they are representing our views. And we keep saying, no, you're not. And we keep saying, if you were speaking on our behalf, you'd be saying what we're asking you to say, not what saying what you want to say. So what they come out with doesn't bear much relation to what we're demanding. And the EU stance is that basically everything that we have at the moment, we should retain. They think that our rights should be the same after Brexit. It's a phrase I hate to say, but if Brexit were to happen after that event, our rights should stay exactly the same as they are at the moment, as if Brexit never happened. That is a direct quote from the EU, as if Brexit never happened. But we don't hear that from Dexu or from the UK side at all. What do you you hear from Spanish people in Spain? What what do they say about the Brits in general? Do you have any problems with them? Do they blame you? Um, No, they they don't blame us. They know that... uh, which side of the argument we're on and Spanish friends and neighbours are very supportive of what we're doing. They think Brexit is a complete nonsense. They can't understand why any country in the EU would make that decision. They value their membership of the EU very highly, so they can't understand why another country would want to throw all those benefits away. And one friend, Spanish friend of mine has said specifically that she finds it offensive you know, they are. They are offended that we've made this decision and they're very keen to do anything they can to support us. Is it bringing out kind of uh, negative stereotypes about the British among the Spanish? You know, I, 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 a few weeks back, I read some reader comments out from a newspaper article uh, saying, cursing Los Isleños, the islanders, saying, oh, it's typical of them, basically, want their, here they go, they want their cake and eat it again. Yeah. Is, it, it asks, is, is negative 
is stuff from the 19th century, uh, the, the, the attitude towards the British being plucked out from the history books and thrown thrown at us again. We do hear that from the Spanish press, but it's always aimed at the British government, not at the British people. So I think they can easily see that there's quite a difference there. Does that go for the Gibraltar stuff as well? It's, it's always very hard to work out where many Spanish people feel about that as opposed to the government. Well, the Spanish want Gibraltar back. It's as simple as that. It's like we are. It's another bargaining chip. Does, does it play a large role in the stuff that people talk about, day-to-day politics stuff? Or? Not so much, but you know that it's there bubbling under the surface. Mm. But it doesn't get mentioned in the UK at all. I don't know the mm. last time I saw the subject mentioned, and it's going to be a, a huge bone of contention. It's so, so true. I mean, even, even in this period where it's suddenly becoming a crunch point, arguably, for that. It's been mentioned once. I mean, I think there was like a week where it sort of came up and then it just drifts away We haven't again. talked about it. We haven't done it either. So it, but it obviously, <laughs> therefore, hasn't been kind of in the news, and we probably should talk about it, but that just shows mm. that it hasn't been kind of yeah. grabbing everyone's attention. I and mean, sh- I think quite rightly they're concentrating on, you know, the three big issues at the moment that are all about the separation rather than the future relationship. So, obviously, it's citizens' rights, it's the exit bill, and it's the Irish border. And those have been the three things that need to be resolved before we can move on to any future discussions of trade, etc. Four months. And the UK government have known that for months, but they still spend all their time putting their efforts into talking, wanting to talk about the future relationship and not resolving the issues that are supposed to be the priorities. I mean, we've been told we're number one priority for 15 months now. And we're no further forward. We're still living in limbo. We still don't know what our future is going to look like. We don't even know if we're going to be able to live in the same country we do now. Uh, But as I say, we are very grateful, at least, that, you know, we live where we do and that we're not suffering what the EU citizens are suffering in the UK. And, you know, there's many Brits in Spain and I'm sure in Germany and France, Italy as well, who will take on nationality of the country they live in in order to keep what they've got if they can't do uh, anything else. But that's a lot easier in most countries than it is in Spain because Spain don't allow dual nationality. Mm. So for some people, to give up that British nationality is just one step too far. If dual nationality was an option, then I think many people would go for that. Well, we wish you and the rest of the Remainers in Spainers uh, the best of luck, <laughs> and uh, and hopefully you know that this sort of period of uncertainty can be can be settled as soon as possible. Thank you so much for coming in. Safe travels. Thank, Thank you. you. My Thank pleasure. You. And there we go. Another show done. Another week closer to B Day. Thanks to our special guest, Ahir Shah. You're performing Control tonight. Uh, yes, for the rest of this week until the seventh at the Soho Theatre, uh, and then touring thereafter. Uh, and everything is on ahirshah.com. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks for coming in. And thanks Give ever me to money. <laughs> <laughs> he really does want the money. <laughs> thanks as ever to Peter and Ian, the Reeves and Mortimer of Brexit. We'll see you again next week. <laughs> and Peter, I believe you have a reason to be cheerful. Well, some uh, a few little scrapings, really, from the Conservative Party conference. First of all, I was glad that Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, didn't even mention Theresa May's very foolish immigration targets. Let's hope that is the start of just dropping them. And of course, Ruth Davidson, ah, Ruth, my idol, making it clear she would sack Boris Johnson. And I like the phrase... Dad 
pin up I, Ruth Davidson. I like that. Exactly. <laughs> Cheers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> If it's possible, uh, if it's advisable for a middle-aged gay man to uh, fancy a young gay woman, then it's, that's, that's my that's my bag. Um, so, she, first of all, uh, saying she would sack Boris, and second, I like that phrase about attacking the reckless optimism of Brexiters. Mm. That's the perfect response to mm. the despite Brexit and and our criticism of the lack of a plan and so on. It is reckless optimism, and oh, but just one extra little bit of thing. I just feel at the end of this week, we've seen Peak Johnson. Mm. <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> Can I add another little crumb to your happy Go bit? on. It's that there's a, there's a clip, a video clip, where the during the May speech, they keep on doing these standing ovations, basically to buy her time, to, so you can drink some water and recover. It's, it's pathetic, man. It's, it's horrific. But nevertheless, they're doing it. Now, just before that, Amber Rudd had had to do uh, daily politics, I think, defending Boris's comments and trying to say that it was okay because he'd done all these tweets afterwards where really he was being terribly serious. There's a video clip of when people get up to do the standing ovation where Amber Rudd just turns around to Boris Johnson and she's just like, get up. And, and up he gets and just obeys. And it's just this perfect moment of like the real her coming out. You're just like, oh, that was very good, Amber. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> well done. We'll see you next week. And before that, here's the traditional sign off. This week, it's Adam Steinert with some Italian. Abbiate fede e difendete l'Europa. Romaniacs is presented by Dorian Linsky, Ian Dunt and Peter Collins. It's produced by Matt Hall and Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. (laughs) 